Let's turn this morning in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I want to begin by asking you, what does it mean to be a Christian? That's a question that is of extraordinary relevance to all people. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What is Christianity all about? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Or have you ever asked yourself that question? If you were sitting somewhere reading your Bible, maybe you were having coffee at Starbucks or maybe you were waiting for a bus or in a doctor's appointment, waiting for a doctor's office, waiting for a doctor's appointment. And say you were sitting there reading your Bible, passing the time well, and somebody interrupted you and said, excuse me, I noticed that you're reading the Bible there. Are, are you a Christian? And you say, yes, I am. They'd say, well, you know, I wasn't raised very religious. And you know, all this talk recently with the election about the Christian position on abortion and homosexuality, I'm just really curious, what is Christianity all about? How would you answer that person? Or imagine you're meeting with a new believer in Christ, someone who recently got saved and has asked you to disciple them. And because they know very little and because they want to try to get their arms around this whole Christianity thing, they want the big picture. They don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And so they ask you, if you had to boil it down into just a few sentences, what is the essence of what following Christ is all about? What would you do? What would you say? In both cases, for both the curious unbeliever and the new convert, eager to grow in grace, probably the most accurate thing you could do would be to give them a Bible and tell them to read it from cover to cover, prayerfully depending on God, the Holy Spirit, to give them illumination and, and understanding as they read. And the answer to what Christianity is about is the sum and substance of God's revelation of Himself to humanity and His Word. But if that were your response, both the unbeliever and the new believer would probably be disappointed and a little overwhelmed. I mean, the Bible is a huge book. It's actually more of a library. It's composed of 66 books written over 1,500 years by more than 40 authors. And it contains a variety of biography, of history, of poetry, of personal letters, and of ethical instruction. It discusses a broad array of topics from a, a creation account to a constitutional law code to records of kings and battles and wars, from songs of praise to lamentations of mourning, from the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus to the history and correspondence of the early church, from exhortations to faithful service to the detailed a description and account of the end of the world. The essence of Christianity is most certainly found in this library of books that we call the Bible. But to simply tell your unbelieving friend or your new discipleship partner, go read the Bible, while accurate, isn't the most helpful answer to their question. But the good news is that throughout the Bible, throughout the various sections, God has graciously given us portions of Scripture that encapsulate the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a child of God. He's given us particular texts that summarize the whole of Scripture's teaching on a subject in a digestible portion that, while it's not exhaustive, nevertheless gives us valuable insight 
and then provides a framework for our understanding the rest of Scripture. Well, in our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, we find just such a text. It is a magnificent treasure from the Apostle Paul, a text whose riches we could mine out literally for months, and I'm tempted to do that. In it, not months starting today, like, you know, months every week by week. Don't get worried. But in this text, we get a glimpse into the very bedrock foundation of the Christian life. In his commentary on the book of Philippians, James Montgomery Boyce entitles the title of the chapter that is treating this passage, What is Christianity? It is that foundational, even to, in the mind of a great expositor like Jim Boyce. He says in, in the commentary itself that Philippians 1, uh, 19 to 21 is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. And then he asks, what is Christianity? Well, because of this text, the answer to that question is not unknown to the believing child of God, end quote. The answer is that Christianity is about a person. Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a person, most fundamentally, that the Christian life, and not just the Christian life, but life in general, is about worshiping the Lord Jesus in spirit and truth. All of life is about worship. And if we can grasp the truth revealed in this text, along with its implications, we will have a handle on the very essence of Christianity, on the very essence of the Christian life, on the very essence of true worship. And as I mentioned, this, this marvelous text comes in the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians, a letter which we've had the privilege of studying over the past couple months now. And I'll remind you once again that the, the subtitle that we have chosen for the book of Philippians is The Gospel-Driven Life, after the, the text, the theme verse of chapter 1, verse 27, in which Paul calls the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, his desire is that they would live their lives in light of the gospel, that everything that they do would be driven by the reality of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. And after introducing the book, we saw in verses 3 to 8 there how the gospel-driven fellowship that Paul shared with the Philippians drove him to give thanks to God for them with joy, with confidence, and with affection. And then in verses 9 through 11, we observed Paul's gospel-driven prayer, his supplication for the Philippians' growth in love and discernment and integrity and fruitfulness, all of which abound to the glory of God. And then last time in verses 12 to 18, we considered Paul's gospel-driven ministry. Beginning in verse 12, Paul turns from his opening greetings and thanksgiving and prayer to immediately inform the Philippians of how things were going with him. See, they were concerned about him. They know that he's been in prison for close to two years now. They know that he's been prevented from ministering the gospel freely, and they know that he's awaiting trial before Nero that could very well bring his execution. And so Paul begins the body of his letter by allaying any concerns or fears they might have about the difficulty that he was facing in his circumstances. He informs them that God has actually ordained that the gospel would advance because of his imprisonment. He says in verse 12, Now, 
I want you to know, brethren, see, he's informing them, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And because his ministry is driven by the gospel, even though he faces hardship and even though he faces antagonism from other preachers, his response is to rejoice. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. So far from being defeated by his imprisonment and by the antagonism of jealous and selfish preachers, Paul is rejoicing because the gospel is going forth and Christ is being preached. And verses 19 to 26 really continue the theme of Paul's ministry as it is driven by the gospel of Christ. Verse 18 kind of acts like a hinge that connects Paul's present rejoicing as a prisoner because of the gospel's advancement to his future rejoicing as a prisoner as he looks forward to his trial and the result. Look again at verse 18 and see that shift from the present to the future. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, present tense, yes, and I will rejoice. I will go on rejoicing. And then the very next words that begin, with verse nine, that begin in verse 19 are, for I know. So just like we saw two reasons last time for Paul's present joy in verses 12 to 18, so now what we have in verses 19 to 21 is the reason or the ground for Paul's future joy. Why will Paul go on rejoicing? Well, let's read the text together. I'm going to start at the second half of verse 18 and go through verse 21. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, what we have in this text, this very complex sentence, are four layers of Paul's joy. Four layers of Paul's joy. And as we peel back those layers one by one, and dig deeper and deeper into the foundation and source for Paul's joy, we discover precious realities about the nature of true worship and the very essence of the Christian life. And so let's begin with layer number one. Paul rejoices because he knows that his circumstances will result in his salvation. He rejoices because he knows that his circumstances will re result in his salvation. Verses 18 and 19 again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this word that most translations render deliverance in the Greek is uh, soteria. It's the word for salvation. It's the normal New Testament word for salvation. And because deliverance and salvation are sort of fairly close synonyms, there's some question about what precisely is this deliverance that Paul is confident in. Some people believe that Paul's rejoicing because he's sure that he's going to be acquitted from his trial and he'll be released from prison. But that can't be because in verse 20, Paul says that he's sure that this deliverance will come 
whether by life or by death. Others believe that he's speaking of final spiritual salvation, like whatever happens in his trial, one day he'll finally be saved, and that brings him comfort. But we gain the greatest insight uh, into this verse when we understand that this is an exact quotation from the Greek translation of Job chapter 13, verse 16. Paul's intending to draw a parallel between his present situation and the situation of Job. The passage he quotes comes directly after Job's declaration that though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job goes on, this also will be my salvation. That's the part that Paul quotes. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. And if you're there and you skip down to verse 18 in Job 13, he says, behold, now I have prepared my case and I know that I will be vindicated. And so as Paul faces his imprisonment and his impending trial and his potential execution, and as he faces the false accusations of those selfishly ambitious preachers in Rome who are preaching the gospel to try to cause him distress, who were saying that he was in prison because of some ministerial or moral failure, he draws this parallel to Job. He comforts himself by turning to the Word of God. Though Job faced accusers who charged that he was suffering as a result of hidden sin, he knew that wasn't the case, and he looked to God for his vindication and his rescue. And in the same way, Paul knew that he had maintained his own integrity, and he entrusted himself to the judge that judges righteously. And as a result, he could rejoice in his sure vindication. And Paul goes on to say that this deliverance, this salvation, this vindication will come, verse 19, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is absolutely confident that the sovereign God will sovereignly work all things to the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. But he's also absolutely convinced that this sovereign God works through means, Paul will be sovereignly delivered by the dynamic duo of prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit. Now, you can't quite see the emphasis clearly through to the English translation, but the grammar of the original Greek language is calling attention to the inextricable link and relationship between faithful prayer and divine help. The provision of the Spirit's gracious help and powerful protection in these times of need comes as an answer to the prayers of the saints. Never underestimate the power of prayer. James 5.16 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And Paul believed that. We saw, especially in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1, that he faithfully prays for the Philippians. And now he's enlisting their prayer support as he hopes to faithfully and boldly bear witness of Christ and the gospel at his coming trial. And so, layer number one of Paul's joy. Paul rejoices because his circumstances will result in his deliverance or his salvation, which will come through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Holy Spirit. But what precisely is his deliverance? What is his salvation? Well, to get a step closer, we have to peel back layer number one and dig into layer number two. The second layer of Paul's joy is that he rejoices because his earnest expectation and hope will be realized. His earnest expectation and hope will be realized. That's verse 19 again, into the first part of verse 20. 
He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. So it is in keeping this salvation, this deliverance, this vindication that Paul trusts so confidently in is in keeping with his earnest expectation and hope. Earnest expectation is an attempt at translating the Greek word apokaradokia. It's a very compound word. It comes from the word head and the verb to stretch and then adds the preposition apa to intensify it. So it speaks of an intense, eager longing, the kind of yearning for something that makes you kind of stretch your neck in anticipation. The only other place that's used in the New Testament is Romans 8, 19, where it describes the anxious longing of the creation as the creation groaning under the curse of sin eagerly awaits the redemption that will accompany the revelation of the sons of God. And hope is what characterizes this earnest expectation. Now, I'm sure that you've heard this before, but in case you haven't, it's important to underscore that biblical hope is not like the way we use the word hope in English today. We say things like, well, I, I hope I get a good grade on the exam, or I hope I get this job, or I hope everything goes well with you. It describes our wishful thinking. But in the Bible, hope is the expression of certainty in the future tense. Certainty in the future tense. That same passage in Romans 8 also uses the word hope when it says the creation was subjected to futility in the hope that it will one day be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now, there is no wishful thinking there. There is no doubt that the creation will be restored when Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So this hope is not, oh, I hope one day creation gets renewed. No, I'm hoping, I'm certain that in the future this will happen. And in the same way, Paul's not saying, oh, you know, I just have a feeling. Or my heart is telling me everything is just going to be okay. No, he's expressing a rock-solid confidence on the level of a guarantee that God will be faithful to realize his hope-filled, eager expectation. And so he is rejoicing. But of course, the question is, what is his eager expectation and hope? To answer that, we've got to go to the third layer of Paul's joy. Layer number three, Paul rejoices because he will not be put to shame. He will not be put to shame. Again, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. We'll stop right there for a second. Paul first states the content of his earnest expectation of hope negatively as that which will not happen to him. He's absolutely certain that he will not be put to shame in anything. Now, in Scripture, shame is not the same as feelings of embarrassment. Uh, it's, it's rather the one, the one who's not ashamed is the one whose trust is not misplaced. Shame speaks of the disgrace and the disillusionment that comes and that one experiences when they proudly place their confidence in something and ultimately discover that that something that they placed their confidence in wasn't worthy of their confidence. For example, the one who builds their house confidently on a foundation of sand will be ashamed when the wind and the waves crash against that house and it's destroyed, Matthew 7. Or, from another of Jesus' illustrations, the one who lays a foundation to build a tower but isn't able to finish because he didn't adequately count the cost 
He will be ashamed, Luke 14. And from a more spiritual perspective, those who put their confidence in their good works to achieve righteousness and their acceptance before God will be ashamed on that day when they face the judge of the universe eagerly expecting a welcome and when he chillingly declares, depart from me, I never knew you. That is shame. But Paul knows that his confidence and his trust are not misplaced. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Paul quotes this verse that we're about to read twice in Romans, once in Romans 9 and once in Romans 10. And Peter quotes it in his first letter. So this is a passage that appears three times in the New Testament. Isaiah 28, 16, Yahweh says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or will not be disappointed or will not be ashamed. God is just piling on the modifiers in this verse. This stone is a tested stone. It is a, a costly cornerstone for the foundation. And the cornerstone was the most important stone of the foundation of the building because it held up multiple sides of that foundation. When you chose your cornerstone, you made sure that you got the best quality cornerstone because no matter what the cost was, you needed your building to stand. He goes on to say that it was firmly placed the picture is that you can build your home on this stone. You can bring your family and your loved ones into this building, and you can trust that everyone will be safe. Of course, that stone that Yahweh would lay in Zion is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16 and identifies the Lord Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the spiritual house that is the church. And so just as Paul has placed his confidence in Christ as the chief cornerstone of his salvation, in the very same way, he trusts that God will see to it that he has not misplaced his confidence, but that he will be vindicated according to his hope-filled expectations. But again, we come back to that question. What is Paul's eager, hope-filled expectation stated positively? We know negatively it's that he won't be put to shame. What is it? positively. That brings us to the fourth layer. Layer number four, Paul's hope is that in all things, Christ will be magnified. Christ will be magnified. And here is where we hit bottom. Let's read again verses 19 and 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is level number four. This is the rock bottom layer of Paul's joy. When you strip away every other outer layer, when you penetrate deeper and deeper until the shovel finally hits something solid, this is what undergirds all of Paul's affections. This is the passion of his life, that Christ would be exalted. 
The word is megaluno, literally magnified, that he would be made to look big, that he would be made to look great. This is what makes Paul tick. He's been under house arrest for two solid years. He's been prevented from moving about freely and ministering the gospel as he'd like. He's constantly maligned by other gospel preachers with no way to defend himself. He awaits with uncertainty a trial that could spell his execution at the hands of the ruler of the known world, one of the most evil men to ever live. But Paul is rejoicing. And he insists that he will continue to rejoice because his joy isn't most deeply in his circumstances or in his own prominence. He didn't find ultimate satisfaction in an easy life or comfortable circumstances, or life without conflict. His joy is not in making a name for himself among other Christians. His joy isn't even in keeping his own life. Paul's happiness at its most foundational and ultimate level was about making much of Christ, whether by life or by death. If Christ is magnified, my joy is full. Notice how deep this runs for Paul. This is the, the part of the very fiber of his character. He contrasts his shame, that I will not be put to shame in anything, not with his honor and exaltation like you'd expect, but with Christ's honor and exaltation. His eager expectation and hope is that he would not be put to shame in anything, but in everything, and you'd expect him to say that I'd be honored, vindicated, but he doesn't. He says that I would not be put to shame in anything, but that in everything, Christ would be honored. For Paul, the opposite of his shame was not his honor, but Christ's honor. And oh, may we get to a place, dear friends, where the deepest cavities are of our affections, in the deepest part of our heart, that we consider it pure joy when Christ is honored and magnified, no matter what is happening to us. May we get to a place where for us, the opposite of our self-abasement is not our self-exaltation, but Christ-exaltation. May we be freed, Father, from our suicidal love affair with ourselves so that we would find all our joy and all our satisfaction in the exaltation of another, in the exaltation of our Lord, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist got this when John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the guy you were talking about, the one that you baptized, he's baptizing everybody now and they're all going to follow him and not you. You know what John said? John 3, 29, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. His joy will be made full because he's going to vanish into obscurity and Christ is going to increase. May it be for us as natural as breathing to rejoice as long as Christ increases, as long as we can proclaim from the depths of our souls, he must increase and I must decrease. And I love that. Even the Lord Jesus got this. Of course he got this in the days of his earthly sojourn. In John 12, 
Jesus acknowledges that the time for his crucifixion is near. And as he contemplates coming under the wrath of his father to pay for the sins of his people, he confesses to his father, verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. And what is his comfort? What does he ask for? Deliverance? He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose I came to this hour. So what is his comfort as he contemplates laying aside the privilege of consummate joy and love and delight that he has shared with the Father from all eternity before the greatest trial, the greatest suffering that anyone has ever endured and that anyone ever will endure, the Son asks the Father, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. This is what he wants. This is what will strengthen him to accomplish that terrible, awesome work of atonement. The joy that was set before him for which he endured the cross, despising the shame, was the glory of the Father's name. Oh, friends, if the glory of the Father's name could strengthen Jesus to endure the most awful kind of suffering in history, then we can bear the scoffing and the mocking of an unbelieving generation. We can gladly sacrifice popularity among our friends. We can endure the disowning and the snubbing of our own families. We can face cancer and disease and arduous medical procedures with joy. We can live our lives with next to no money and worldly comforts for these 80 short years. We can lay down all of our lives in service to Christ if, if my Father will glorify His name, if the name of my God would be lifted up and exalted and magnified, if I can see Him and enjoy Him in all of His majesty, then for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the answer to my opening question. What is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It means that when you peel back all the layers at the very bottom of your affections, the most ultimate level of your soul, what makes you happy, what satisfies you is not the glory of yourself, but the glory of Jesus. The Christian life is about magnifying Christ. Is that you? Is he the passion of your life? Do you live and breathe for the magnification of Christ, for the display of his glory? If not, that means you are an idolater, that you seek your joy and your happiness somewhere other than Christ. And I just invite you to repent and to come and learn what is true joy and true satisfaction, what they are all about. Now, I know that your idols don't condemn you. I know that they don't confront your sin like God does, like the true God does, but they can't save you either. They're no true gods. So turn from your idols. Stop pursuing your happiness and your satisfaction in alcohol, in drugs, in sex, in money, in prominence, and in the approval of others. 
Lay aside those broken cisterns which can hold no water and come and drink of the fountain of living waters and be satisfied, finally. And so Paul's joy is unshakable. Though he's facing a trial before Nero, that could mean his execution, he's convinced that whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ will be magnified in his body. And it's this that he regards as his deliverance. It is this that he calls his salvation. This is his eager expectation and hope, the magnification of Christ. And in this, he will rejoice. Now, those are the four layers of Paul's joy, but that is not the end of the sermon. Perhaps the most important point in this whole text is how verse 20 relates to verse 21. The infinitely important question is, why? Why can Paul be so confident that Christ will be magnified? All of his joy is staked on this reality, that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. If he's wrong, his, all of his hope, all of his expectation are gone, obliterated. So how can he be so sure? How will Christ be magnified? Why will Christ be magnified in Paul's body? And here is a treasure, verse 21. For or because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is so key. If our goal as Christians is to magnify Christ in all things, if worshiping Christ and spreading forth his fame and magnifying his worthiness is our singular passion, then verse 21 is absolutely key because it tells us how that is accomplished. How do we worship Christ? How can Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death? Now, we need to follow his thoughts and his reasoning closely here, if we're going to grasp this. I need you with me for the next 20 minutes. If, if you've been kind of out for a little while, come back, and I need, I need all of your attention to focus because this is so precious and not extraordinarily obvious, but it's there, and I will show you. So Paul says that he will rejoice because he's absolutely convinced that his great passion, the magnification of Christ in his body, will come to fruition. Why? Again, because, and now notice that word for there. If your Bible doesn't have for at the beginning of verse 21 or because or something like that, get a new Bible. <laughs> it means because. Why will Christ be magnified? Because to him to live is Christ and to die is gain. We need to see this causal relationship and we need to unpack what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. And our hope for understanding this is considering each one of those halves one at a time, and I'd actually like to, and, and how they relate to verse 20. And I'd actually like to start with the second one first, because I think that understanding what it means that to die is gain will shed light on what it means that to live is Christ. So let's look at the death half first. Verse 20, he says, my eager or earnest expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by death because to me to die is gain. I'm going to say that again. I'm taking out the life portion of the text. I'm just focusing on the death. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by death because 
for me to die is gain. Now, the first thing to notice that it's, it's very easy to skip over or to misunderstand is that tiny little phrase, to me. It is emphatic in the Greek text. It's brought forward for emphasis. And not only does it make what Paul is about to say intensely personal, but it also introduces a subjective component to all he's going to say, okay? Christ will be magnified in Paul. Paul will worship Christ by magnifying his glory because to him, to him, to die is gain. He's emphasizing that there is a real subjective experience that drives his worship of Christ. Now, don't jump ship on me. I don't mean what some people will think I mean by that. But there is, to me, to live as Christ. So what is that experience? It is the experience of death, which is the loss of all things as gain. Now, death is not gain for Paul simply because he thinks death will bring him to some generic better place. We need to understand, Paul does not view death as an escape from the worst things of life. He liked his life. He had a full life. His life was probably one of the most not-wasted lives ever lived in history. But he, he, so he doesn't view, it, view death as an escape from the worst things like, oh, to die is gain. I can't wait till this is over. No, he views death as an infinite improvement over the very best things in life. So why is death an improvement on his life if not merely to end the pain and suffering that life brings? Look at verse 23. It says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. One commentator hits the nail on the head. Death is gain for Paul, he writes, because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And when he compares that unhindered, unmediated, sin-free, face-to-face fellowship with the Lord Jesus himself, and then he compares that with all the things that death can take from him, he esteems Christ as more valuable. Christ will be magnified in Paul's body because to him, in his estimation, Christ is more valuable than anything and everything that death could take. Now, death can take a lot of wonderful things from us. Death can take money. Death can take status and reputation. Death can take power and fame and success in business. Death can take away family and dear friends. Death can rob you of the experience of growing old with your spouse, of seeing your children grow up and having your children have their children, and then maybe even seeing your grandchildren have their children. Death can take away a thriving ministry where others are receiving great spiritual benefit. Death is the loss of all those things and more. And Paul is saying, when you can experience all of that loss, when you can lose the very best that this life can offer, and yet call all that loss gain because you know that it will mean that you will go to be with Jesus, then Jesus will look great. Jesus will be magnified. Jesus will be shown to be supremely worthy and valuable. 
And that is the essence of worship. To the degree that you experience death as gain because you cherish Christ, to that degree he is magnified in your death. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. The essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. 100% correct. Now, I spoke in my last sermon on this text almost a month ago about the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were Puritans in 16th century England. I suppose that's a little bit of an anachronism. They were Protestants in 16th century England under the reign of Bloody Mary. And because these preachers of the gospel would not swear allegiance to the papacy and because they rejected the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they were burned at the stake in 1555 in Oxford. And at the dinner table, a lot of times what gets quoted there is Latimer saying to Ridley, be of good courage, Mr. Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light a candle in England that I trust shall never be put out. And I talked to you about that time, that uh, part of that last week, last uh, month. But what people don't really quote all the time, if you read in Fox's Book of Martyrs, is the dinner conversation on the night before. This is just awesome. The record of history writes this slightly updated to more familiar language, which I trust you will appreciate. The night before Nicholas Ridley suffered, he groomed himself carefully. And as he sat at supper at the house of Mr. Irish, he invited Mrs. Irish, along with everyone else at the house, to his marriage. For, he said, I will be getting married tomorrow. He will go to see Christ, the great, the great bridegroom of the church. And he showed himself, it's the Fox's Book of Martyrs says, he showed himself to be as merry as he ever was at any time before. And desiring his sister to be at his marriage, he asked his brother, who was sitting at the table, whether she could find it in her heart to be there. And he answered, yes, I dare say, with all her heart. And Ridley was glad to hear that. But at this talk, Mrs. Irish wept over the man's fate. But Mr. Ridley comforted her, and he said, Oh, Mrs. Irish, don't you love me? Your weeping leads me to believe that you won't be coming to my marriage, or that you're not content with it. Indeed, you are not so much my friend as I thought you'd been. And, he, and so he turns at that point from jest, which is a really helpful way of comfort, to a more solemn comfort. And he says this, But quiet yourself. Though my breakfast shall be somewhat sharp and painful, yet I am sure that my supper will be the more pleasant and sweet. Oh, that Christ would be so sweet to us. Nicholas Ridley has loved us today in the decision that he made that day by treasuring Christ so deeply, by finding him so pleasant that he was worth that kind of pain and suffering. And in his esteeming Christ to be so precious for him that to die was gain, he has magnified Christ's worth in his body by his death. Hasn't he? I mean, when you hear that story, what do you walk away impressed with? Wow, that man had great faith. No! That man had a beautiful Savior. Surely for him, to die was gain. But you know, in a very real way, death for the Christian is the easy part. In one sense, to die in such a way that we experience Christ as gain, it only takes a moment, a good moment, a resolved and resolute moment, but a moment nevertheless. 
but living in such a way as to display Christ as our treasure, that takes a lifetime. It takes millions of small decisions and choices moment by moment. So let's look at the other half. Verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified in my body by life because for me to live is Christ. Now, there is, there is so much written on that phrase, to live is Christ, and what it means. People have said it means to believe in Christ. It means to love Christ. It means to rejoice in Him, to live for Him, to have fellowship with Him, to follow after Him as His disciple, and to serve Him in ministry. They've said that it means that Christ gives all meaning to one's life, that without Him, life is meaningless. They say that he is the object, the motive, the inspiration, and the goal of all that, Christian, that, that the Christian does. They say that he is to be our purpose, our priority, our passion, and our strength. And I say amen to all of those. Acts 20, 24, Paul says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's exactly what he says in the next verse, Philippians 1, To live on in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me as I continue to serve Christ and I consider, continue to serve his people. So it means ministry for him. It, it means living for him. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but the Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then we have Colossians 3, verse 4, which says very simply, Christ is our life. But there is one text just a little bit later on in Philippians, that I think nails what to live as Christ meant for Paul practically. And that's Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Turn there with me. In the verses just before that, Paul speaks about all of his earthly credentials, the spiritual resume of the Hebrew of Hebrews. And in verse 7, he says, but whatever things were gain to me, notice that key word there, gain, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There it is. How does the Christian magnify the supreme worth of Jesus? How do we make Christ look great, as great as he is? By experiencing or esteeming or counting Christ as such a treasure that everything else is as nothing by comparison. To die is gain, meant to survey all the wonderful things that death could take from us and to prefer Christ as more valuable as those things. In the same way, to live is Christ means to survey all the wonderful things that this life can offer, the best that life can offer, and to prefer Christ as more valuable such that everything else in your life is lost on your affections 
It has no hold on you. You count it as garbage so that you can gain the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul can be absolutely certain, get this now, that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, Christ will be magnified because Paul is more satisfied in Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take. I'm going to say it again. Paul can be absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and by all that death can take. Now, if you understand that, if that arrives at home in your understanding, every part of your life is transformed. It transforms the way we think about what it means to be a Christian, how we get saved. It's not by praying a sinner's prayer, and it's not by making a decision and raising your hand. It's not by accepting Jesus, quote-unquote, into your heart. It's not even about subscribing to a new theology, merely. Becoming a Christian is finding a treasure. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Out of the overwhelming joy of finding such a treasure, the repentant sinner sees the surpassing value of Jesus and he counts everything that he owns as a loss so he goes and sells it and buys the field just to get to the treasure so that he could gain what was of surpassing value. And not only does this transform the way we think about conversion, it transforms the way we think about sanctification. And perhaps here more fundamentally than anything else, the way we fight sin and temptation. See, we experience the temptation to sin because everything in our flesh sees value in that sin. Nobody sins because they're compelled to do it and they don't want to. Nobody sins out of duty. We all sin because sin holds out some promise of pleasure to us. I will make you happy. I will satisfy you. And it's never true. There are lusts of deceit, Ephesians says, but there are lusts nevertheless. We believe that money and power and fame will satisfy us and make us happy. You might believe that satisfaction and happiness are found in the approval of other people. Okay, they, they like me. They're not upset with me. I can rest easy. Ah, oh, it feels good. Fear of man. You esteem pornography and sex outside of marriage as of so great a value that you think it satisfies because you think it satisfies your desires. You look to alcohol and drugs to assuage the pain that you feel, to try to dull it, because you think that will give you relief and satisfaction and happiness, or at least it will dull the unhappiness. You get angry and you remain bitter at another person because it feels good to be right. It feels good to be vindicated. He was wrong, and I made him know he was wrong. Ha ha, I win. And you hold a grudge because you're more satisfied by that bitterness than by Christ. But when for you to live is Christ, when all things, money and power and fame, the praises of men, pornography, sex, alcohol, drugs, anger, bitterness, impatience, when they're counted as loss, 
in comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ, then he is more valuable and desirable and satisfying than all the false pleasures that those sins so deceitfully promise you. And you fight the temptation to seek satisfaction and happiness in those things, not by, not by squelching your desire. You don't fight the temptation to seek satisfaction in sin by stopping to desire, stopping to want, stopping to want to be satisfied, but by glutting the appetites of your soul on the feast that is Christ Jesus himself. You fight the temptation to evil pleasure with the promise of a superior, holy pleasure. Get this. Understanding this concept transforms conversion. It transforms our understanding of sanctification. And the last one I'll mention, though it transforms a litany of other things, the last one that I'll mention is how to steward the good gifts that God gives us. Everything in your life, everything you have is given to you so that you might use it in a way that makes plain to the world that things are not your treasure, but that Christ is. Money, family, friends, houses, cars, computers, toys, laptops, education, degrees, job experience, all of that is given to you so that when the world looks at the way that you use money, or the way that you use your car or your house, or the way that you interact with your family and your friends. So when they see that, they will know that none of those things are the bottom of your joy, but that Christ is. That's how we become faithful stewards of what God has given us to enjoy. We hold all those things, we use all those things in a way that displays the value of Christ to a watching world. Paul's joy is unshakable. He may face the worst of circumstances. He may face death, ridicule, physical, social, and ministerial limitation. But he is adamant that he will rejoice. He will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice because he knows that his circumstances will turn out for his salvation. And what is that salvation? How does he define it? He says God will bring about his eager expectation and hope. And what is his eager expectation and hope? That Christ will be magnified. He is absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied in Christ than by all that life can offer and by all that death can can take. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity all about? It means to live and to die in order to magnify Christ by being satisfied in him and preferring him to all else. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Those are not two separate things. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. One is the means to the other. We glorify God as our chief end by experiencing him as more valuable and more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. What are you living for? 
What are you dying for? I pray that it's Christ. Father, we do ask that we would be living and dying for Christ alone, for he is the only one who is worthy of such boundless allegiance and affection. Father, these are the, the most weighty and lofty ideas that I've ever beheld in your scripture. And this is, the, this is the very best that I know how to articulate them. Please grant, dear Holy Spirit, that you would fill in the gaps, that you would make up the ground that is lost by this poor, lisping, stammering tongue. Grant that you would speak to your people, that you would confirm the truth of your word in their hearts, and that you would show them this as a matter of conviction out of the text itself, and not because their pastor or other preachers or other authors uh, say it to be so. Give them the conviction that their greatest joy, their greatest satisfaction is in the magnification of Christ, that they're commanded to pursue that, and that makes the Christian life a joy and not a drudgery. We confess to you that you are so worthy, you are so satisfying, you are so desirable that this Christian life, though this world was devils filled, though we walk through difficulty and pain and despair, nevertheless, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. The commandments of God, 1 John 5, 3, are not burdensome. And we pray that you're honored by our feeling that way. Teach us what it means that for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.